Chapter 23 of Organic Evolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dion Gines. Organic Evolution by Richard Swan Lull. Chapter 23, Part 2. Fauna. Temporary Fauna. The temporary visitants to the caves need hardly be discussed, as they exhibit little or no special adaptation to cavern life. The bats come the nearest among the temporary forms, and their adaptation, which is truly marvelous, is largely a nocturnal response, which serves incidentally for cave dwelling. The brown bats of the Wyandotte cave are described as returning daily to the cave for shelter. They cling in masses or small groups or singly to the vertical walls, the ceiling or any dry parts of the various caverns, some relatively near the entrance, others far within the caves, at distances and through galleries puzzling enough to man, even when supplied with brilliant lights. It is still a great problem to know what the special sense is, or what may be its degree of reflex or possibly conscious reaction on the bats themselves by which they conduct their flight through such galleries and among such numerous stalactites and stalagmites. Sometimes the masses of bats are so extensive that with a stick one may scrape from the wall a quantity sufficient at one sweep to fill a bushel basket. Permanent Fauna Only one mammal, aside from the bat, seems to be present, and that is the white-footed mouse, which seems to be in a sort of transition between an epigean and true cave-dwelling form. This creature is characteristic of temperate woodlands, where there are no rocks. These mice burrow and form extensive underground galleries. They even persist where the woods have long been cut away in open fields and meadows. In rocky woodlands they seek crevices among the rocks. When they collect in the caves, such as the Wyandotte, there is no evidence of their burrowing, or of using any choice in the selection of nesting places other than in breaks or against overhanging walls. They were taken two hundred yards from the entrances of the cave in totally dark galleries. These mice are not blind as yet, but have bulging eyes and long whiskers, tactile, and ears, all of which may be looked upon as partial adaptations to darkness, whether cave or not. No birds are permanent cave-dwelling forms, as there are no blind birds some nocturnal birds such as owls use the caverns for daily refuge and there dwells in the mountainous regions of northern south america and the island of trinidad the oil bird steatornis carapensis related to the owls and goat suckers which nests exclusively in caves this creature was made known to science a century ago by alexander von humboldt but was recently rediscovered by roosevelt and figured quite extensively in the daily press as the colonel's bewhiskered devil-bird. No reptiles are permanent or even temporary cave-dwellers. Eigenman found one turtle a little way in, probably an accidental ingress, and a copperhead snake at the mouth of a cave. There are many blind burrowing lizards and snakes, but, as we shall see, the cave fauna has not been recruited from fossorial types the only apparent exception being the mouse mentioned above. As for the amphibia, there are no blind frogs or toads, hence no cave-dwelling ones, largely in all probability a result of their mode of progression, for jumping in the dark is directly at variance with the ancient proverb which advises observation in advance of saltation 
as the only safeguard. Blind crickets inhabit caves, it is true, but they are armored creatures whose lightweight and general organization render concussion of the brain a very remote possibility. Of cave salamanders, on the other hand, there are several in North America, two with normal eyes and two with degenerate eyes, and the last are a direct response to cave life, as there are no blind epigean salamanders. The normal-eyed forms belong to the genus Spelurpes, of which S. maculacata is red and black, while S. stegnigeri is yellow and brown. The former is found from Indiana through Kentucky to Missouri, the latter southwest of Missouri. Neither has progressed appreciably in the direction of cave degeneracy. This is not true, however, of the remaining two salamanders. For Triflotrion spileus, which is light brown and lives in southwestern Missouri, has normal eyes in its larval state, with marked degeneracy of these organs upon becoming adult. The eyelids and the rods and cones of the retina all disappear. Typhlocnola rathbuni is a perennibranch salamander, that is, one with permanent gills, and has extremely degenerate eyes which have no muscles and are covered with skin, and therefore functionless. Typhlocnolgi is bereft of color and has very long slender limbs. It gives an impression of extreme emaciation. This salamander inhabits the subterranean rivers of Texas. All the specimens thus far known having come from the water of an artesian well, 188 feet deep, near the San Marcos. Proteus anguinus is a peculiar form restricted to the underground waters of Carniola, Carinthia, and Dalmatia in Europe. Near Trieste are the huge caverns of Adelsburg, which are especially noted for the occurrence of the Ohm, as the Germans call it. Here it dwells in absolute darkness, in an almost constant temperature of 50 Fahrenheit. Their total length is scarcely one foot. The whole body is white, occasionally suffused with a slight, fleshy, rosy tint, while the three pairs of gill bunches are carmine red. They are easily kept in captivity and live for many years, provided three conditions are strictly adhered to, that is, fresh and clean water, an equable low temperature of about 50 Fahrenheit, 10 centigrade, and darkness. The question of food is not so very important, since specimens are known to have existed for years, although they refuse to take any nourishment. How far darkness is an absolute necessity is not known. Anyhow, the white skin is almost as susceptible to light as is a photographic plate. If light is not absolutely excluded, the white skin becomes in time cloudy, with gray patches, and if kept exposed to stronger light, the whole animal turns ultimately jet black. While totally blind, these creatures are nevertheless annoyed by the approach of a candle flame, showing that the body is sensitive to light. They are guided to their prey mainly by the vibrations which its movements give rise to, possibly also by the sense of smell. The fishes include the largest number of cave dwellers, the cave catfish, the species known as Gronius nigrolabris, is a partially blind form found in the caves about Conestoga Creek in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and Jordan thinks it is evidently derived from local epigean species. The eyes of many catfishes are not highly developed and are of little use in detecting food, so that their further reduction as an adaptation to cave life is not remarkable. 
The great majority of North American cave fishes belong to the family Ambelopsidae, with all of the species, whether cryptozoic or epigean, show signs of degeneracy, eight having degenerate eyes, five mere vestiges, six dwelling permanently in caves, one in a spring, the others in open streams. This family contains several genera, of which Chobgostler, Cornuasi, the dismal swamp fish, represents the epigean ancestral type. In this fish the eyes, though small, are normally developed and the colors are also preserved. Other species of Corlogaster possessing eyes and color, but also provided with the tactile papillae, which are so highly developed in true cave forms, are found in cave springs in Tennessee and southern Illinois. The small cave fish, Tiflictus subterraneus, from the Mammoth Cave, is supposed to be a direct descendant of Cologaster. Here the eyes are present in the young, but become defective and useless in the adult, and are partly overgrown with other tissues. Ambliopsis, Apuleus, of Mammoth Cave, is one of the most interesting of cavern fishes. Eigenman describes the senses of this creature at some length. The animal is totally blind, but has what he calls terminal buds, interpreted in part as gustatory, taste organs scattered over the entire head, especially on the lips and snout. Experiments indicate that if they are present on other parts of the body, they are few in number. While these fishes are no doubt able to taste by means of the buds on the lips and snout, practically all of the food is found by means of the tactile sense. The young, up to 40 millimeters in length, do not have terminal buds developed, and so their food is located entirely by touch for the sense of smell plays but a minor part, if any. The tactile sense enables the fish to detect vibrations in the water, originating at least 18 inches away, and it turns and swims toward the point of agitation with unerring accuracy. Agitations behind the animal are not so quickly detected as those in front or on either side. As the fish live in quiet waters, this sense becomes of the utmost importance to it far exceeding in value that of smell or taste. Although blind, Ambiopsis avoids even the diffused light of a room, remaining in the dark compartment of the aquarium until night, when the specimens all collect in the light compartment. Bright sunlight is irritating, and even a lighted match held near the aquarium causes very general and active movement. The direction of light does not influence the action of these fishes, but their behavior is due to a perception of difference in the intensity. In Cologaster, young fish an inch in length react more strongly to light than older ones, even if their eyes are destroyed, and one part of the body is as sensitive as another to a pencil of strong light. Amblyopsis also shows a strong positive reaction toward violet rays and a strong negative one toward pink and blue, heliotropism. The ear of Amblyopsis is anatomically normal, but no ordinary noises such as screaming or striking together metal bodies over the fish have the slightest effect upon its actions. It seems, therefore, to be totally insensible to sound waves, although, as has been shown, highly sensitive to other vibrations. Amblyopsis feeds on occasional young fish of its own or some other species. It also eats the blind crayfish and crinonyx and perhaps secudoca although the latter lives concealed under stones. The crayfish feeds upon the two lesser crustacea, so that sooner or later their substance may form a part of the amblyopsis 
even if they do not contribute directly to its menu. The invertebrate fauna shows in general the same modifications among its members as are found among the vertebrates. Summary of Modifications The adaptations which cave animals have undergone are all in the nature of retrogressions or modifications of pre-existing structures. The principal modifications, therefore, fall under the four following groups, of which the first is 1. Loss of pigmentation or bleaching in response to lack of light. The Cuban cave fish, Stigacola, a modified marine fish, is in a transitional condition, as the individuals range from pale violet to steel blue. The former should be found in the deeper recesses of the caves, but as a matter of fact, both light and dark fishes are found side by side. As had been said, the diffused light penetrates deeply into these Cuban sea caves, which may account for the apparent slowness of depigmentation. The rosy color of the proteus, especially the carmine of its gills, is simply due to the hue of its blood showing through the pigmentless skin. Proof of this, if such were needed, would be the alternate paling and reddening of the gills when bloodless or suffused with the life-giving fluid during respiration. 2. Reduction of the eyes. These may degenerate in the manner shown above, the individual parts of the eye becoming imperfect and hence functionless or the entire eye may be still further reduced, covered by other tissues, or even become entirely obsolete. Blind forms, as has been shown, may nevertheless be sensitive to light, and even heliotropic. As a partial recompense for the loss of vision, tactile organs, including antenna, or possibly the sense of smell, may be increased in efficiency. Cave fishes and salamanders are highly sensitive to ordinary vibrations, although in some known instances deaf to sound waves. 3. The organs of digestion may be considerably modified, due no doubt to the scarcity of food, which not only implies long fasts and irregular digestive activity, but a highly efficient utilization of whatever of nutrient value the food may contain. 4. Slender bodies and long attenuated appendages are also characteristic of cave dwellers. The botanical term depauperated which means falling short of the natural size from being impoverished or starved, expresses the general appearance quite clearly, as almost all of the effects, other than those produced directly by the absence of light, are due to scarcity of food. Quiescent conditions seem conducive to length of appendages, for this characteristic is seen in other localities as on the bottom of the sea. Convergences as one would infer, convergences exist because of the simple and uniform character of the environment, which offers little opportunity for a variety of habitat or habits. Hence, of necessity, all cave creatures tend to look alike. Food supply. The scarcity of food has been emphasized, but the ultimate source of food is yet to be discussed, for in its final terms animal food is derived from green plants, which in their turn depend upon sunlight. Hence, nature's great epigean laboratory must be the ultimate source of the food, and its transference into the cave is largely a matter of chance. Some is doubtless brought in by temporary visitants, whose rejectamenta form a meager supply for the busy scavengers, which in turn perish that others may be fed. Some plant food is blown in, or carried in, by the subterranean streams, but it may readily be seen that the amount of food available is in indirect proportion to the size of the cave and directly in proportion to that of the entrance. 
Theories to Account for Cave Modifications Several theories have been advanced to account for cave modifications, among which are the following. 1. Cessation of selection, or amphimixis, would probably account for the reduction of certain structures, although whether it would cause them entirely to disappear is a mooted question. The reversal of selection may account for the loss of such structures as the eyes, for it is conceivable that in the deeper recesses of the great caves the presence of such easily injured organs might become a menace rather than a mere matter of indifference. 2. Most explanations of the origin of the retrograde characters of cave animals involve the inherited effects of disuse, in other words, the inheritance of acquired characters of which so many good authorities deny the possibility. 3. In view of the difficulties in the way of this, it seems that the theory of the cumulative effect of determinate variations may explain the adaptation for cave life, which makes possible the origin of cave inhabitants and their further modification after becoming cave forms. 4. The forms were adapted first and changed their environments to suit. Perhaps a compromise explanation embodying portions of those listed above may come nearer the truth than any one exclusively. It may be that creatures already weakened and tending to degenerate entered the caves for retreat from the strife of epigean existence for which they were unfitted, and that starvation and absence of light increased the individual degeneracy and finally had its effect on the race. Nevertheless, it may well be that certain of the modifications shown by cave-dwelling forms are merely ontogenetic. Origin of Cave Faunas Four theories have been advanced by Eigenmann to account for the origin of cryptozoic faunas. These are, one, accidental carrying in. This probably plays little or no part in cave peopling, for frogs and fishes placed within the caves have speedily departed, either to the epigean region or to oblivion, and such attempts have never succeeded in establishing a single new cave form. Two, step-by-step -step colonization. The species penetrating further and further into the deeper recesses in successive generations. 3. The animals may have developed along with the caves. Hari Pasu, a theory which is rather unlikely. 4. Animals elsewhere adjusted to do without light may have gathered voluntarily into the caves. This, as has been emphasized, does not mean fossorial forms, but those which lived in crevices or under banks and rocks where feebler creatures would be likely to take refuge. The white-footed mouse has such a habitat in rocky woodland, and it is only when it lives in woodlands, where no rocks exist, that it burrows and thus proves the exception to the rule. This burrowing, furthermore, may well be a secondarily acquired habit. This last theory of cavern populating conforms most nearly with that which seems most plausible for the origin of cave modifications. End of chapter 23, part 2, recording by Dion Gines, Salt Lake City, Utah.